So Money, episode 399, Denise Duffield Thomas. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. So Money is brought to you today by Wealthfront. Wealthfront is the most tax-efficient, low-cost, hassle-free way to invest. Now, many of you I know are interested in simplifying your investment strategy. You want to reduce fees. You want to work with a service that you trust. And Wealthfront delivers. It builds and manages your personalized, globally diversified portfolio. To open an account, the minimum is just $500, and that gets you a periodically rebalanced, diversified portfolio of low-cost index funds. There are zero trading fees, zero hidden fees, and advisory fees that are just a fraction of traditional advisors. In fact, Wealthfront manages your first $10,000 for free. To learn more and sign up, visit wealthfront.com forward slash so money. Welcome to So Money, everyone. Thursday, April 14th, 2016. What did you think of Follow the Leader last night with Lior Cohen? Didn't you love him? Didn't you love Young Thug? Didn't you love me and Lior Cohen and Young Thug all together? What was I doing there? I mean, under any normal circumstances, I would not be invited into any of those meetings, right? I mean, like, please, I have no business being at YouTube or Spotify or driving around with uh, the guy who founded Def Jam Records. But here I am. And this is what this job has allowed me to do, to run around the country with some of the world's amazing leading entrepreneurs. And last night's episode, I think, was pretty epic. So let me know what you thought. And today's guest is pretty epic. She is the money mindset mentor for the new wave of online female entrepreneurs. Denise Duffield Thomas is here. Her best-selling books, hold your ears if you don't want to hear these words, Lucky Bitch and Get Rich, Lucky Bitch, Both provide a fresh and funny roadmap for female entrepreneurs to create both a successful life and business. Denise helps these women release their fear of money, determine premium prices for their services that they offer, and take back control of their finances. She's also an award-winning speaker and entrepreneur herself. Denise and I talk about how she went from the welfare offices as a child to now earning seven figures as a money coach. How did she do it? It didn't come without some financial highs and lows. And why she would want to go on a vacation with none other than Susie Orman if she won the lottery. Only if she won the lottery could she be able to do this. Here is Denise Duffield Thomas. Denise Duffield Thomas, welcome to So Money, all the way from Australia. A pleasure to have you on the show. Can't wait to learn all about Lucky Bitch Empire. Yes. Well, I'm a big fan of your show, so I'm thrilled to be here too. Thank you. I think we can say bitch on So Money. We can say whatever we want. Um, <laughs> if, uh, apologies in advance if you are offended with the B word, but uh, it's a favorite here on the podcast. And Denise, tell me a little bit about the manifestation of LuckyBitch.com because I've been reading your bio. I've been familiar with your work for some time now. Your journey prior to arriving at this at this empire of yours where you're now helping female 
online entrepreneurs develop healthier relationships with money and wealth and abundance. It, it wasn't a straight path for you. Tell us a little about why you are doing what you're doing and how your journey has led you here. Sure. So I've always, always, always wanted to be an entrepreneur, and I, but I didn't know what that meant. You know, I was like, I think I want to work for myself. I think, you know, I want to work in an office. Like I, I didn't know anyone who really had a, one of those kind of businesses or a real job growing up because I, I grew up in a very kind of working class kind of environment. Um, and I was really frustrated because I was trying to find what that was for a long time. And actually in my early 20s, I did kind of dabble into the training, coaching, speaking that I do now. But I got all these messages from people sort of saying, well, that's not a real job. Like that's not a real thing. You know, what are you making? What are you selling? And um, so I shied away from that for a long time. But it wasn't until my um, my late 20s again that I started pulling together everything that I'd been learning for years around personal development and um, self-improvement and all this kind of stuff. And I found a tribe of women who were doing the same thing. And this was key because before that I'd go to entrepreneurial conferences or whatever, and I'd be the only chick in the room. And I was looking at what these guys were doing and I thought, but if that's being an entrepreneur, I don't want to be that. Like, I don't want to just be selling weird stuff online or I don't want to be <laughs> like running these weird kind of seminars where you're obviously trying to scam people into buying something from you. And so a big turnaround for me, I think, was um, was finding a tribe of other female entrepreneurs. And I started out doing life coaching, like a lot of people do in, you know, kind of my field. And very early on, I realized that most of my clients were just dealing with money stuff all the time. And I, I resisted that calling because I thought, God, I know people want this, <laughs> but why do I have to be the person to do it? And I'd be interested if you had a similar thing. I was mm -hmm. like, universe, I, I'm not Susie Orman. Like, don't, I, I can't Which be the is actually girl. probably like, a good thing. The <laughs> universe only has room for one Susie Orman. Let's all be ourselves. Exactly. But I thought because I wasn't qualified like her, I had no place to even be in this conversation. And I really resisted that calling. It was such a strong calling because I knew, you know, I, more women need to, to talk about money and be okay with money. And I knew I had something to say, but I, I was like, universe, don't make me the money girl. And as soon as I realized that I could just be a money girl, <laughs> I could just contribute to this conversation then that's when um, my, my business really took off because I, I just let myself off the hook with it. And actually the reason, the funny reason why I called my business Lucky Bitch is because when you um, start to uh, take more responsibility with your money, when you really start to manifest things that you want, people don't see the hard work behind it. They don't see all the things that you had to overcome to get there. And all my friends were calling me a lucky bitch. And I was like, oh, you're so lucky. And I was like, well, not really. Like yes. I've been working on this for a long time. And um, so I thought it'd just be funny to call my company Lucky Bitch because now I really, I take people behind the scenes and say, well, look, no, here's what you really have to do to, right. um, it's to be successful. Irony. Yes, definitely. But Denise, why do you think money came to you so naturally? Why were people gravitating to you? Because I, I like you, I feel like I grew up in a home in an environment where money was not taboo. We talked about it. And that was enough for me to then as an adult be able to deal with financial complexities with courage and with 
with practicality as opposed to like fear and anxiety. So it wasn't that I grew up being great at math or being great at analysis necessarily, but it was just that I think, and it wasn't just this one thing, but I think it's, it's the most important thing, which is that you don't have any trepidation. Uh, you don't feel like there's a mental barrier between you and dealing with money. That was me. What was it? What was it, it for you? Like, what do you think is your, uh, what is, what is the reason behind your comfort with money? Uh, it wasn't so much a comfort with money, I think, but I'm a, I'm a natural drug pusher except my drug of choice has always been books and <laughs> concepts. And I was always the kid, even at high school, um, saying to people, oh, you have to read this book. And I've just found out this thing. And so I've always been a naturally enthusiastic person who wants to share what I'm learning. And so even though the topic was kind of intimidating for me, as soon as I started learning more concepts around money and, so, and as soon as I started feeling more comfortable about money, I just naturally started sharing it because that's just the kind of person I am. <laughs> I'm like, you have to read this amazing book about money and, oh, my God, I just did this thing about money. So um, I think that was it for me. But also realizing that um, I felt like a black sheep in my family and my communities talking about money. So naturally, when I started to attract more people, I just wanted them to feel okay about money as well. And, and so it really comes from a desire, I think, of wanting to make things easy for people and wanting to um, and wanting to make it okay for people. You know, so I'm I'm not an expert in money, but I think I really like being um, part of a movement that is normalizing money conversations for women. And why do you think women, in particular, maybe female entrepreneurs, have complexities around money. I mean, you specifically chose female online entrepreneurs. Uh, was that yeah. just because that way you could be global and you could scale? Or was it there was a specific kind of underlying concern or complexity or issue that, that this group dealt with more so than others? I think that's both. So one is I live in a, um, a small kind of beachy city in Australia and I knew I wanted to have a global audience. So that was definitely one of those things. I knew I wanted to reach and touch women who were doing business in the way that I was doing business, which was online. Um, but the other reason I think was um, particularly women is that I do see that, that a lot of women have got some real stuff around money. And it hits the online entrepreneur's I think gives them a bit of a double whammy. And I'll give you an example. One of the big blocks I see for women is that you have to, this con concept or belief that you have to work really hard to make money. And this hits the online entrepreneurs a lot because a lot of the time we don't have stock. Um, you know, eventually people can start making passive income and it really triggers us, right? Because we feel like we're not um, often earning the money or we're not doing something real for the money. Um, so it, it's just, it's fit really nicely, I think, for, for that target market. I was watching one of your videos about what to do if you experience a period of maybe a bit of a financial drought as an entrepreneur or some cash flow issues. I have experienced this in my own business. What, how do you ride that out? You can start to doubt your capabilities while you're also worried about making ends meet. That combination yeah. can be really, really difficult to get through. Absolutely. But I think the bigger conversation there um, is that women, we make up stories around things that are very normal parts of being in business and very normal rites of passage. So, for example, cash flow issues. 
every entrepreneur, no matter what stage of business you've been at, uh, including billionaires, have experienced cash flow issues. The difference is that a lot of women, when things like that happen that are very normal, we internalize them, we blame ourselves, but we also almost see them as signs that we're not meant to be successful. And other examples could be, you know, getting your first refund request. It's a very normal part of being in business. But I see little things like that often completely derail um, women to the point that they then feel paralyzed to do anything about it. So that's the bigger conversation that I want people to be aware of is, and this is why all my videos are always like, hey, this is really normal. (laughs) Don't worry. This happens to everybody. To stop women making up stories about stuff like cash flow issues, so then you can you can do something about it. Because I really believe that that most women are very cap you know very capable, smart, can write a to do list and follow it. I, I do think most of the time it's eighty percent mindset, whatever yeah. business challenge you're facing. So speaking of mindset, what's your money philosophy? What's the lucky bitch financial mantra? There are easier ways to make money. There are always ways to make money. And you have made money. There are easier, easier ways to make money. There, oh. <laughs> um, yes, there are easier ways to make money. And I, this is really important because sometimes you can get, you've probably done it. I've definitely done it. You start to go off on little tangents in your business um, or you go, oh, maybe I should like make T-shirts or maybe I should, you know, work with this. Maybe I should drive and- Uber. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, or, you know, oh, wow, I know that client was a real pain in the butt last time, but maybe they'll be different. And so this philosophy, it is so useful in so many situations. When things come up, you think, you know what, there are easier ways to make money than doing that for me. Um, so that's definitely, that's definitely my mantra. Um, you know, last year I was dabbling in physical products because I forgot my mantra. There are easier ways to make money than mm-hmm. making music. So wait, what have been the easier ways for you to make money? Tell me everything. Um, yeah. Well, it's different for everyone because I think it really fits into to your zone of genius. It's where your zone of, zone of genius connects with um, maybe how, how quick it is to create something versus the reward. I usually map things out on a little matrix and go, okay, like, you know, is this going to be fast or slow? Is this going to be little bit profitable or very profitable. And for me, doing things like uh, physical retreats in person, which I have done, I did some last year, that for me falls into the category of doesn't make much profit and, you know, it's is kind of a time-consuming thing. Um, so I think there are easier ways to make money for me than creating in-person retreats, even though sometimes I still do it because I forget. So um, I think it's useful sometimes to map out every idea that you have and go for the easiest one first. It's okay for it to be easy. And not just because it's easy, but in some ways it's smarter. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just smarter. Maybe you should not, because I feel like people want to be like, well, that's just lazy, you know? I mean, sometimes putting on a physical retreat while it, the profit margin is not so great, but there's a lot of uh, inherent value to that. You're getting to meet with people one on one, you're connecting, you're building relationships in a way that you just can't do online. So there's other value to that. But I see what you know, I totally get what you're saying. But um, I just don't want people to think like, oh, easy means lazy. No, it doesn't. And that's the block that I was talking about before about um, women get blocked sometimes around it has to be hard to make money. So often we ignore the obvious mm-hmm. and easy things and the low hanging fruit because it's like, oh, well, that doesn't count because I enjoy it too much or that doesn't count because it's so easy for me to do. 
Um, and, and honestly, that's sometimes where you should start. What's easy for you isn't easy for everyone. Um, so right. but that's a, definitely a block. It's a block that women do. We go, oh, well, that's too obvious. It's like, yeah, go for the obvious. <laughs> go for the low-hanging <laughs> fruit, people. Definitely. You mentioned how you always, as a child, believed you wanted to be an entrepreneur. So share a little bit about your childhood and specifically your maybe your biggest money memory as a child growing up. Well, a very early one actually was sitting in the welfare office with my mom and um, she was trying to, I think she was giving like address information or something. She was like, oh, this is where we lived last time. And, and me being quite a precocious kid, I was like, oh, but what about this house we lived in and this house? And mom was kind of like, shh. And I remember sitting there thinking, wow, this man sitting at this desk has the power over us to if we basically eat or not. And it was such a disempowering feeling um, early on in my life because our, our life often, my mom is a single parent, was dictated by men like that. And for a long time, um, I had a belief that that men made all the money and women were, were pretty powerless around it. So I don't know where the, the first idea came from about being an entrepreneur, but I think it came from a real desire of having independence and making, making my own money. Did you have later on a lot of jobs when you were a teenager? Yes. <laughs> you probably hear that a lot from entrepreneurs, right? I do. I do. I think it's a direct correlation, frankly. I think the earlier you start working, the earlier you start to really appreciate the value in working hard and also when you're accountable to something that could lead to great responsibility, lots, some money, and then it just gets you, hopefully gets you excited about your next job. I think it does as well. And one of my very first ones, I mean, I did some little entrepreneurial efforts like trying to sell bracelets and um, yard sales and things. But um, when I was about 12, I started working for my dance teacher doing assistant dance teaching, which paid for my dance lessons because, again, it was that independence thing because my mom and, and my stepdad at that stage, whenever I was naughty or they would try to control me, they they would really harp on about my dance lessons. And when mm. my mom was a single mom, you know, she'd, she'd always kind of, um, you know, use that against me. And so I was like, well, screw you guys. I'm going to pay for my own dance <laughs> lessons. Um, and, you know, and then um, I worked in a shoe shop and I did a lot of different jobs. And when I was at, um, at university, at college, I worked about four or five jobs and at any one time. And But you know what? I think it does teach you a lot, but, that I see now it was still coming from that place of having to work hard to, to make money. Um, you know, I, I, I could have, especially at university, I could have had jobs that maybe were related to my career. Like some of my friends were doing apprenticeships and things in accounting firms. And I was like, wait, you know, waitressing and working in a phone sex line because there were 24 no, hours. No, stop. Okay. Wait yes. a minute. <laughs> You've done a lot of different jobs. I was on your website. Yes. You've had a lot of um, unique positions. Ha ha ha. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know about the sex phone operator job. Yeah. And the reason why is because it's open 24 seven, <laughs> you know, and I was like, oh, great. I can work six. I can work midnight to 6 a.m. and squeeze in another job. Um, <laughs> Did it pay well? It, Did it pay for no, tuition? It, no, it paid just a normal, you know, a normal hourly wage. It was like in a marketing, looked like a marketing firm, you know, all these cubicles of all these middle-aged women. 
Um, and <laughs> it's not sexy. Don't at tell all. all the guys. <laughs> oh, I know exactly. It was like grandmas in there, basically. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. So it's you know, but again, I made that that um, that decision from a place of like how mu- how much can I work? Mm. You know, who where can I work? And I, I really got burnt out a lot in my early twenties because. I didn't really value myself and my skills. I was just like, well, that's another job I can get. And that's another job. Oh, I can work weekends at the waitressing thing. Oh, I can work overnight at the phone sex place. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I worked really hard, but I, you know, I see that when women then transition to having a business, it can feel almost really guilt inducing to do something and get paid really well for it or get paid multiple times for it. So when, when entrepreneurs, say, write a book and they feel guilty for making money out of that book. Cause it's like, well, I didn't have to work for, you know, selling the mul- multiple copies after I broke even or right. passive income courses. So I think it's a big thing for a, a lot of those kind of hardworking early experiences to overcome. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm always looking for ways to save time, so I'm really excited about our next sponsor, Prep Dish. Prep Dish lets you enjoy whole foods-based meals that are thoughtfully crafted to make the most of your budget, save you time, and surprise your taste buds. Prep Dish is a healthy subscription-based meal planning service that takes the guesswork out of grocery shopping and meal prep when you want to eat well, but you're short on time. Each week, you receive an email that contains a grocery list and instructions for prepping your meals ahead of time, and it only takes two hours to prep a whole week's worth of meals, but it gets even better. Prep Dish is offering so many listeners a special offer of $4 for the first month of meal plans. It's only a dollar a week. Just go to prepdish.com slash so money and use my code so money, one word, when you sign up. Special diet? No problem. They also specialize in gluten-free, dairy-free, and paleo meal plans at no extra cost. That's prepdish.com slash so money and use my code so money for $4 for your first month. What would you say was your greatest financial failure, Denise? Yeah, I was thinking about this one because greatest, there's nothing being that big, but I've made tons of little ones, right? So, um, and one I'll share from quite recently. Last year, I thought, oh, I might make an app. Like, Danielle Laporte's got an app. Maybe I should have an app. And um, so I invested, you know, about probably about 10 grand into creating an app without much thought about where it strategically fit into my business. And um, when I got close to the end of, of making it, which, you know, is a, a, a great company, Tree of Apps, I totally recommend them. It's not their fault. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't a good strategic move for me. But um, I realized I was like, oh, God, am I really going to sell something for like, you know, a couple of dollars? What if things break in it? Like I really do not want to – have to get all these emails from people <laughs> like, oh, this, this isn't working. And it's like, oh, you paid me $2. Like, oh, this yeah. is not my business model. So I decided at the end just to make it free, um, you know, it's part of my philosophy of being free or very expensive. And um, But it was a, it was kind of a mistake. I, I, I mean, it, it really doesn't fit into my business very well. And unfortunately, within a couple of weeks, it did break. And I was so, so thankful that I hadn't charged for it because at least I could say to people, oh, so sorry, like it's free, just delete it, <laughs> delete it, we'll mm-hmm. fix it sometime. But also I wasn't expecting the barrage of emails about, hey, when are you going to make an Android one? Uh, Android one? And I was like, I don't want to. That's a really good lesson for a lot of uh, entrepreneurs. And I think we start to look at 
everyone else in the marketplace, the people that we respect or we want to emulate. Well, they're doing this and they're doing that. And we feel the pressure to, to do the same. And I just read a really interesting headline today for a story that I've I've starred that I'll read later, but basically it's like, don't just try to do more, try to do different. It's really that you want to find the, your value proposition that's different. And so it kind of takes a load off because then you don't have to worry about what everyone else is doing. Just do your thing. Absolutely. And there are easier ways to make money for me than making money from an app. (laughs) Yes. You know, you got to ask yourself that too. Is this the, is this, easy? Is it going to flow? Is it something I want to do? And for me thinking, God, every time I get an email about this app, it's like, I don't, it's not my thing. And as a consumer, an app either has to be free or if I'm going to pay even $2 for it, I know this is like so silly, but if I have to pay for an app, it better be damn good. Exactly. And this is a good lesson for everyone listening too. The, the clients who pay you a little bit of money will feel way more entitled than clients who pay you a lot of money. It's yeah. It's very strange. Wow. Why do you think that is? What's the psychology behind that? Um, I, I have no idea. But I think sometimes when it comes to things like apps, we have got a perception in our mind of like, oh, well, they have to be really cheap. You know, no one's paying like $50 for, for an app, even no. though it's a lot more goes into it than, say, writing a book. Um, you know, it's a lot more technically, technically difficult, but we're just conditioned to pay certain things. Um, and, but the thing is too, the reason why I ditched, I was like, Apple makes it really difficult to give people refunds, oh. really difficult. Mm. So I was like, do I really want to be dealing and pissing people off for $2? No, no I do not want to be doing <laughs> I do not want to do that. Losing customers yeah. $2 at a time. That's that's terrible. No, not fun. But that's the thing, you know, with, uh, I, I do think a lot of the people have to think about their pricing and their positioning in the market in that way, because obviously with my courses that are a lot more expensive than that, if someone sends us an email, we take care of them. We want to take care of them because it's something that we, we can do. My assistant can fix, help someone if they've lost their password for our course. Can she fix someone with, you know, a bug on an app? No, she can't. So, so you have to really, um, think about all the implications of, yeah, figure out which battles you want to, you want to take care of. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, I don't want to do with that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What's your so money moment? Um, I, when I paid off my debt was, was amazing when I was debt free. Um, and how much did you have? It wasn't a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton. It was maybe about $30,000. So, you know, a big, big chunky amount, but I know people have definitely gotten worse than that, not including my student debt, which in Australia, they just make you pay off a little bit in your, in your tax return each year, um, which is probably another 20 or so. But um, paying that off, and I did, it didn't just happen, right? And I want people to hear this too. Things like that don't just happen just because you make a bit more money. You really still have to be um, really conscious of that. So I put together a spreadsheet. I was shocked that I didn't know how much interest I was paying. I didn't know the balance of each card. Um, I didn't know any of that. I was I just had my head in the sand a lot of, a lot. So, um, yeah, I put it all in a spreadsheet and every week I bored the pants off my, um, mastermind buddies. Cause I gave them a week by week update of my debt. <laughs> and, um, and, and I knocked it off pretty quickly doing it like that because what gets measured gets improved as we all know. And I thought that when it, when it 
um, was gone, I would feel like this massive elation and sense of achievement. But really the sense of achievement came during paying it off. So when I paid it off, I was just like, cool. <laughs> that's, that's yeah, it was done. the journey that was more exciting than the the crossing that finish line. Definitely. And it taught me, it taught me a lot. I realized that, um, you know, there was some minds, big mindset lessons around paying mm-hmm. that debt off and lots of forgiveness. Um, I realized I had some resentments around some of the debts and what we'd spent the money on. I felt some shame around some of that. Um, you know, I had to, to look at family lessons and stuff like that. And even just, it's very socially acceptable to have debt. You know, most people do. Um, and it felt really, uh, yeah, as some, in some ways it, I was like, Oh, why should I put is, all this money into yeah. my debt? Well, I want to spend it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you've traveled a lot. I know because you, uh, did that, you, you renewed, you've renewed your wedding vow. Like that was like 80 times or something like that, because you had this job that allowed you to go and basically test out honeymoon vacations. Yes. Okay. That's amazing. <laughs> that's right. Yes, I wrote about it in my first book, um, Lucky Bitch, uh, about this competition that Mark and I won, which was through a honeymoon company in Ireland. And um, they sent us around the world for six months, all expenses paid. uh, And we had to renew our vows everywhere we went. We were attempting a Guinness World Record attempt. I think it was about 87, uh, the record when, when we started. We got to 83, sorry. We got to 87, but by the time we got to 87, the couple who held the record were up to 99. And I was just like, uh, yeah, you're like, I want to go home. I want to just go home. (laughs) Like, there are some other (laughs) things I want to do with my life than get married again. Well, so you weren't spending that much time in every place, but I'm curious based on your travels and just your awareness of, of, you know, all your different clients across the country, across the country, also, also the cross maybe the world. Are there cultural differences um, when it comes to our, our money emotions, our money handlings in Australia, for example, what's a, what's probably the, the, the biggest challenge or the biggest myth or whatever versus maybe in America? Well, you know, that's a really interesting question and, and not one that I, I really feel like I can answer. And I'll tell you why. I, I spent all, all of my 20s living in the UK. And when I moved back to Australia six years ago, um, I've never had a full-time job in Australia. I, When people ask me where I live, I'm tempted to say Facebook because I don't feel like I've really got a job. I live on Facebook. Location. <laughs> yeah, that's, the, that's the, been the only constant in my in my life as an adult is living on Facebook. That's where you can always find me. Um, doesn't matter where I live. And so I do feel a little bit like a global citizen, but I will tell you one in, very interesting cultural thing that I've noticed. And um, I was talking to, it might have been uh, Neil Patel about this, and I was saying about um, about Moneybox, and he, he didn't get the concept at first at all because he was like, well, why, would, why would you do that? But what I've noticed in some cultures, um, earning more than your parents um, is a cultural no-go or a cultural expectation. And that can really um, create a lot of shame for, for people. So when women especially start to make more than their parents or their, or their dad, it can start to feel really icky, whereas in some cultures you're expected to make more than your parents so you can take care of them. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I just found that a really interesting cultural thing. Um, and I would even suspect that in the cultures where you are expected to make money and take care of your parents – 
there's probably differences between the the girl children and the boy children as to how that how that feels. Sure. Yeah, but I'd love I, to do more research on that. No, that's really an interesting observation. I've definitely experienced those um, that phenomenon. You know, I've I've seen that happen to people both sides. You know, whether it's um, there's expectation that you're going to make more, and then there's uh, the shame that co- that comes with the fact that you may make more than your father. Especially, I know my girlfriend; she's a doctor, and her parents always wanted to her be, for her to be a doctor. She became a doctor, and then all of a sudden, she started to make more than her father. And I was like, "Wait a minute, what?" And I'm like, "Didn't they know that was going to happen? Because it's a different generation, um, you know." you're very savvy. You went to a better school. I mean, I don't know. They just perhaps didn't realize that that was uh, one of the possibilities and they weren't prepared for it. And it kind of created a little bit of awkwardness between her and her parents. But I think they're over it now because uh, they realized probably as they get older, it's nice to have children who can uh, take care of themselves and maybe even you if you if you if you need it. Absolutely. But you can see the mixed messages right there. It's like, hey, we're sacrificing everything for you to have a good education so you can earn more than us. But hey, not too much. Right, right. <laughs> you know, it's like, Watch it wow, there. Yeah. That, and that can feel really shameful, I think, for women. Um, it, it feels like we're disrespecting mm-hmm. our families, especially, and this is where the entrepreneur thing comes in, especially if we're doing something that from the outside does not appear to work <laughs> right or to be working well, hard oh like- my gosh you really hit it on the nail because especially online entrepreneurs I think uh, they have a hard time really explaining to a lot of people what they do those messages that we get can feel really icky for women and it feels like we're making money in inappropriate ways and so it can really I see a lot of women really sabotage their income because of those conflicting feelings um, and, and mixed messages. I remember my little sister was staying with me one time and I had a VIP day back when I was seeing clients one-to-one and she was like, did she just pay to hang out with you all day and like to be your friend? <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, yep. no, but from the outside I can see how it can look like, you know, well, we don't work that hard because, to be honest, <laughs> sometimes we don't. Like we're doing something that we really Right. Enjoy. Well, you're doing what you love and you've – but. You orchestrated that and the hard work is done. Now you're just reaping the benefits. Absolutely. And it's, you know, like my mom, she, um, she works in a hospital and even there's been times when I've felt really guilty about making the money I do by doing something that's, you know, enjoyable to me, you know, pretty easy physically and it obviously brings up some stuff. Um, yes, you know, you have to have a lot of bravery, I think, to be an entrepreneur. But my mom the other day, she goes, but you've been working on this for your whole life. You know, like you've put the work in. And it was really nice to hear that from her because it it, it still brings up conflicting feelings for me around guilt mm-hmm. um, and and that I don't deserve it, you know, and, and that's being really honest. And I always say to people too, um, making more money isn't going to completely clear away those feelings. Money doesn't solve money blocks. Um, you still will have some of those feelings. So don't feel like, just having them is a sign from the universe that you're not meant to be successful. You right. just have to hey, work on them all the time. Listen, I still have moments like that where if I have an extra two hours free in the afternoon, I think like I should be doing something productive. No, maybe yeah. I should just be like sitting there reading a newspaper or <laughs> getting my nails done because, you know, I I deserve it. I've earned it. 
Yes. Well, thank you for reminding me of that. (laughs) Yeah. And you know what? You don't hear guys having those conversations. No, no, they don't have those. Heck no. Um, Denise, tell me about a habit that you like to practice that helps you with your money relationship. Yeah, sure. It's, it's tracking money actually. Um, so I update, um, I, I, I do it in a couple of different ways. I, um, I personally use a spreadsheet, but I say to people, you know, you can use a paper one or you can use my lucky bitch money tracking app. And then <laughs> it actually does work. Right. I do love it. Even, even though it was, I said earlier in the show, it was one of my big financial mistakes creating it, but people do love it. Um, so I think daily tracking, tracking your money is very, very powerful. And, um, I probably check my bank account, I would say two to three times a day to update that spreadsheet to make sure that I'm on track with my goals. But also when you're starting to track, I think um, it serves a couple of different purposes. One is sometimes people are way more abundant than they think they are. Like they might've actually hit their financial goals, but they've got their head in the sand about it because they've got conflicting feelings around it. Um, Two, they're not making any money and they're not aware of it. So sometimes it's a wake up call. It's like, you know what? go chase those clients, go chase up that invoice. Like the money doesn't, doesn't fall from the sky. Um, so it's, it's really about awareness and appreciation, um, tracking money. And this is different from bookkeeping, which I obviously suggest people do bookkeeping, but just keeping a very close track on like, is money, is money actually coming into your life right now? Um, is, is very powerful. And I, I still do, I started doing it, um, probably about five years ago when I was, um, just starting to make money in my business and I still do it every day. So I think it's, it's one of those success habits that, um, you can do at any stage of your business. Well, Denise, let's do some quick money. So money fill in the blanks. This is when I start a sentence and you finish it and I'm expecting nothing but witty and funny and smart and quippy. Hey, by the way, folks, it's like, it's 10 o'clock Eastern time for me. What time is it for you? Uh, it's midday. Midday. Okay. So if I seem a little loopy, that's why. Um, <laughs> alrighty, here we go. If I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say a hundred million dollars, the first thing I would do is I would hire Susie Orman to go away <laughs> to a tropical island with me for a week so I could figure out the best way to spend it. <laughs> well, I thought you were just gonna say you were gonna send Susie Orman to a tropical island all by herself. <laughs> I would go. You would actually want to be with her? Okay. Yeah, I thought about that a lot. I thought it'd be good just to go somewhere with with someone who could talk some sense into you and make a bit of a plan um, on on what to do with the money. That's cute. Don't forget your jacket. Mm. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I love Susie. She's fab. Uh, All right. One thing I splurge on that makes my life easier or better is... Um, help around the house. Yeah. Um, especially the things that I don't like to do. No one likes cleaning their own toilet. And you know what? No, no one's one. paying me to clean my own toilet. No. <laughs> there are easier ways to woman. <laughs> yes. I know you don't like to splurge on handbags. And I know you, I know because I watched your YouTube videos that you have like, um, a, a, uh, crystal collection. Is that yeah. the one thing that you really splurge money on? Like for, for your kind of hobby or just sheer pleasure? I would say it's probably books. I spend a lot of money on books on my Kindle, um, but probably my hair. I love going to get my hair um, blow dried, you know, every week when I've got 
kind of got the time. It makes me feel really good. I this is really embarrassing, but I I don't remember washing like I very rarely wash my own hair. <laughs> oh my god, you're that addicted. Wow, okay. Yeah, like I've got um a shampoo and conditioner in my bathroom that I probably bought two years ago. Um <laughs> Instead, wow, that would be, that's pretty expensive. Um, it's really not. Pastime. It's really not. And I, I, I did a video about how my hair makes me thousands of dollars. Uh, oh, well, if it's an, it yeah. is an, your hair is an asset and it does need to it get washed. Is. I mean, and it means too that like I'll make videos, I'll do Periscope. There you go. Um, you know, it makes me a little bit more extroverted having exactly. Good hair. <laughs> I feel the same way too. If I go somewhere that let's say I'm doing a, a television hit, they give me hair and makeup. Afterwards, I feel like I need to go out to eat or be invisible because like, what's the point? I'm just going to go home and sit in my house with my hair and makeup done. That's no fun. <laughs> yeah. Who cares about like a husband's thing? Oh yeah, him. <laughs> yeah. It's like, hmm, it's not for him. It's for my periscope. No, but if followers. it's like two in the afternoon, he doesn't get home then. So I have like a lot of hours to go out there and, you know, strut my stuff. Yeah. I yeah, but yeah, that's I I love spending money on. on <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's another. When I was growing up, the one thing I wish I had learned about money is, oh uh, yeah, that that women can be powerful around money. Mm-hmm. It would have been such a great lesson to learn earlier on in life. When I donate, I like to give to blank because um, causes that are really have really practical solutions. So. Um, some of my recent donations is to the Fred Hollows Foundation that do eye surgery in, in developing countries. Um, a, a, a very small organization that does baby carriers for uh, refugees. Mm. Like, you know, literally people mm. have just come off ferries and it's like, here is a baby carrier for you yeah. so you don't have to hold your baby. You know, so just really practical solutions. Um, I love Every Mother Counts, which um, – does birthing kits for women in third world countries who like have their baby on dirt, you know, like I, I'm a big, a big fan of women and children. Pencils of Promise is, is a, another one that um, a couple of my friends and I built a school last year. I want to build another school this year. So just education, women, children, practical solutions. Wonderful. All right, Denise, you're going to kill this one. I'm Denise Duffield Thomas. I'm so money because. <laughs> because I believe every woman can create her own luck around money. I love it. Lucky bitch. Thank you so much, Denise. And um, thank you. I'm, I, you have a brand new fan here in New York City. I'm so in awe of everything that you've created. I love what you're doing for women. I consider myself in your audience. So um, bravo. And, um, I understand you're expecting baby number two. So congratulations. And we look forward to that news uh, any day now. Yes. And, um, you know, just to everyone out there, I just want to say it's why not you? Like that's, that's kind of a recent motto for me after just realizing like you you can do it too. Yeah. So just ask yourself that every day. Like, why not me? Everyone deserves success you put in the work. Everyone can do it. Everyone's capable. I totally agree. Yeah. Denise, thank you so much. Thank you so much as well. And thanks everybody. 
That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Denise, her website is luckybitch.com and she's on Twitter at Denise DT. All this information and more back at somoneypodcast.com where you can also ask me a question. Just click on Ask Farnoosh. goes right into my inbox. And then pretty soon on a Friday episode, I'll be answering your money question. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. Hope your day is so money.